Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders. Produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's Shed. Hello and welcome back to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders made in Australia and distributed all over the world. It's raining out my window today, a bit of a common experience across our great country at the moment. Not quite the spring we've been hoping for, but if you're looking for something to fill in a dreary day, you can listen to any episode of The Shed Wireless at menshed.org forward slash The Shed Wireless or simply Google The Shed Wireless. Here's what we'll be talking about in this episode. For our special guest today, I had a backstage chat with Ross Wilson. Literally, a backstage chat. We caught up backstage at Hamer Hall in Melbourne about his musical roots to Daddy Cool and what he gets up to these days, including, of course, what you might find in his shed. For Shed in the Spotlight, I spoke to Dave Clark from Willow's Men's Shed in Williston, South Australia. I learned a few interesting facts about the shed, as well as the Men's Shed Bat for Will project. On the tools, we're in the garden with Mark Valencia from Self Sufficient Me, and I'm feeling a bit inspired to get back out into my own garden. As a matter of fact, I've already done it. I went straight down to the local hardware and bought so many seedlings, and I'm happy to say that they're still alive. For Ask the Doc, AMSA's Stuart Torrance and Dr Darren Headley from La Trobe University had an interesting chat about autism beyond childhood, a subject a lot of us could probably learn a little bit more about. And Rip Woodchip is thinking about life after death. Are you an organ donor? I'm sure I've got one in the studio here somewhere. Well, let's get into it. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for shedders across Australia and around the world. Get ready to shed. Yeah, there's something for you at the men's shed. Well, Ross, welcome to the Shed Wireless. Yeah, what a nice surprise. Yeah. <laughs> just to fill everyone in, we're backstage at the Hamer Hall. Yes, we are. Uh, ready to Getting ready to go on stage together at some time tonight. Mm. How did you... Start off. How did you come uh, go from being just Ross Wilson, who was not the performer, into Ross Wilson, the performer? Well, uh, like most people, I think it's sort of a gradual process. In that, uh, my family was kind of musical. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of music around. Uh, my grandmother could play the piano. My mother could play the violin and the piano and, and was a well-trained singer. So she would join in whatever choirs were in the district. And a, as time went by, she got my brother and my elder brother and I to join the local Anglican church choir mm-hmm. where she was singing. And that's, I guess, how I first, you know, started performing, other than singing around the house along with the radio and things like that. Yeah. So... In the church choir, you know, as a boy soprano, you had to kind of learn to sing in harmony and stick to your part and all of that. Yeah. So that was kind of instructive. And you don't even think about it at the time, you know. And you were but, a boy soprano? Yeah, in, in a church choir. And when I was, it was about a, I don't know, 10 or 11 was when I first got dragged down there. And my brother, he was three years older than me, so he was sort of progressing from beyond boy soprano into the next stage, you know. Mm-hmm. And my mother was a soprano. 
And, you know, I learned all about, oh, this person sings alto and this one sings baritone and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, at the same time, I'm like watching television and things like uh, Johnny O'Keefe, you know, Six O'Clock Rock. Yeah. Uh, and loving all that stuff, you know, and, and seeing like local performers, you know, they'd have all, not they wouldn't have international people on it. They'd have people like, you know, Dick Richards and Lonnie Lee and, and I got to go, well, they're, they're Australian, you know, and they're all singing pop songs and mm. and having a good time. So that, all that kind of fed into it. And then, you know, I got I was liking what was on the radio and I got my dad to take me to Festival Hall one time and I saw Johnny O'Keefe and, and uh, Jerry Lee Lewis and Buddy Holly and the Crickets all on the one bill. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of exciting. And, yeah. and then I would have little fantasies about like, oh, maybe I'll be on that stage one day. And without any kind of thought that I'd ever be in a band or anything, I'm just thinking, gee, that'd be, that looks like it'd be really good, you know. Hmm. And lo and behold, like about 12 years later, I was headlining there or something, you know, with Daddy Cool. But that was, that was another story. So what, what was the first job you did when you left school? Uh, well, I, I was already in a band when I... Oh, at school, okay. you yep. see. Um, in the the neighbourhood, there's a couple of good things happened at the secondary school I went to, which is called Halebury College in Brighton in, in, in Melbourne. There was a, a young band. See, in the early 60s, there was this kind of folk and trad jazz revival that was embraced by young people. Peter, Be- Paul and Mary. And yeah, and it was just sort of, of because pop rock had kind of got homogenised and... And, and gone a bit saccharine, you know, mm-hmm. like the exciting rock, like Little Richard and Little Jerry Lee Lewis had sort of got watered down, you I know. I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And so there was this thing that sort of happened in England and 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 a lot in Australia and, you know, Melbourne and Sydney of uh, folk clubs and, and, and teenage dances where jazz bands played, right? Right. So this trad jazz band, the Red Onion Jazz Band, they were a couple of members of them were in the older kids in our school. And we used to go along and see him play at the dances and, and go, wow. You know, and then then the Beatles came along and and I was thinking, gee, maybe we could have a maybe we could start a band, you know, and my friend was played the drums and so we went along to uh, another friend of mine who had a little rock band and he um, put on a dance at a church hall just around the corner mm-hmm. and I went along to that. And I'd started playing the harmonica, like blues harmonica, right? Copying things on records and copying Beatles records and then finding some blues stuff and copying that. Yeah. Anyway, I sat in with them. They were playing, they had the first Stones album, they were playing Stone songs. And I sat in and played a bit of harp, you know. And this other little band that had been on before playing instrumentals, you know, like Shadows and Ventures and all that. <coughs> They came up to me afterwards and said, hey, you know, good harp playing. We want to play that kind of music. Can you sing? Oh. And I said, yeah, I can sing, yeah. I said, well, we're having a, a blow at, uh, you know, Ross Hannaford, who was, you remember Ross Hannaford, who was a big The lovely guy, Ross right? Hannaford, Well, yes. at that time he was only like just turning about. A Newcastle the, boy. Was he originally? Yes, yes he was, yeah. And anyway, at that time, he, he he later became like six foot two or something, but at that time he was only about, you know, five foot three or something and sort of big, <laughs> fat, fat little kid, you know, about uh, just under 13, 12. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't imagine him. Yeah, that. no, yeah, it was funny. It was pretty funny. So, like, he um, was at his, at his uh, folks' garage and they had this quite big house with a double garage. So, 
I rocked up there the next uh, weekend and they already had another friend of theirs like singing, you know. And I get up and I sing a few things and play some harp and that guy's out and I'm in, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's the, br- the brutality of show business, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. So we started playing and one of the kids in the band, Rick Dalton, he was quite a go- gung-ho. He really wanted to get things happening. He was ambitious, you know. So he got us some gigs at... Uh, the downbeat club in in the middle of town, which had been this jazz club, and because rock had started to take over again, mm. they were changing their thing, and so they were having. And we, I don't know how we got this gig, but because we could barely play, but you know, we went up there and we plugged in and, and sang a few songs, and some of our friends came along and all of that, and that's sort of how we started, you know. Yeah. And then we saw an ad in the paper, which I've still got a copy of. I've still got it. Cut out somewhere. It said R and B bands wanted no experience necessary, and we went, "That's us," <laughs> you know. So we rang these guys, and they were young, so-called managers, right? And um, they were they were putting on a dance down at Rosebud. So we ended up playing for like two weeks with the parents' permission and everything, going down to Rosebud and playing for two weeks at this little club above some shops in an old dance hall in Rosebud, which in the middle of summer where everybody goes down to Rosebud and mm. in their caravans and everything. So there was kids coming in and paying their two bob or whatever they paid. And, we were, and then, you know, other bands would come and play and and, and it was just the wildest time. We are staying in a, a fibro, you know, holiday house and, and getting up to all kinds of mischief. <laughs> and that was, uh, that was sort of how it all started, you know. I mean, so- the band was called The Pink Finks. Right, and we and then we came back from that, and we decided we needed a record, you know. So we just went to a, we didn't bother about going around auditioning for anything. We just went to a, 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 a recording studio, and cut a record, right, like live, just singing, mm. playing, a couple of mics. So these guys, I think, used to record. It was an old picture theater, and these guys used to record jazz bands and stuff. So they just took up a couple of mics. And we all just played and cut a couple of tracks and went, yeah, that sounds all right. Let's put it out on a record. So we did. It was a, and uh, and we put it out on our own label called Mojo, and much my brother, who was an art guy, he designed the label and everything. And lo and behold, it made the Melbourne charts. <laughs> you know, it like number it amazingly progressive for that time. And that was like a garage record. You know, like it was the wildest sounding record. Uh, Louis, Louis, you know, Louis, Louis. Yeah, you know, everybody did that song, and we did a, a quite a, a, a wild version of it. You know, in fact, I couldn't even figure out the words from the the Kingsman's record, which is the only one I'd heard at the time. So I just made up my own words. <laughs> so it's got it's of all the thousands of versions of Louis, Louis, this one's quite distinctive because it's got completely different lyrics. <laughs> you know, that's how how stupid we were. You know, so like, did you ever have a straight job? Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah. And what was that? Well, that the pink things lasted in that, that, that like year twelve of my um, of my you know, and I got through that. Yeah. And uh, graduated. We got my certificate, and uh, then I'm hanging around the house over the summer, and my mother says, "You know, you finished school now. You don't get holidays anymore. You're going to have to get a job." <laughs> you know, this was a terrible shock to me. You know, oh damn. You know, so like. <laughs> So I had to go and find a job. So I was talking to my friends and they said, well, apply for the public service, you know. 
I've I got one. I'm working for the PMG. Don't go there, shit house, you know. Like, yeah. you know, what can you get? So I went in and did the exam, and they said, "Yeah, yeah, you're good. You've got the right qualifications, and you passed the exam. Uh, you can have, you know, this, that, that's, or the other thing." And and I said, "Oh, okay, Department of Supply." I just picked the one I, you know. So I ended up as a tender clerk. Uh, the Department of Supply, which is now part of the um, Department of Defence, right? Right. And what they did was like a tender clerk, you would put ads in the government gazette and say like, we need, you know, a million uh, uh, can openers for ration kits or something like that or, or, you know, know, 10,000 pairs of boots, you know, all this kind of shit. So like, so I would sit there, you know, and, and... and, and that things would come in, uh, people offering to tender for it, right? They go like, mm-hmm. and, and you have to figure out, and then you have to make up a report like, well, these guys have done it before, so we know they do a good job. These guys are saying they'll do it for less, but we don't know anything about them, so we'll give it to the other guys, you know. So you put a report in, and uh, and then they'd sort of, the board would have a look at it and then stamp it and go, da-da-da, you know, right. next, da-da-da. But the best thing about it was I had my own desk, right? I had a phone. Wow. You could smoke in the office in those days, right? Yeah. So everybody would be smoking like chimneys and stuff. And, um, <laughs> and and then they'd bring you around a cup of tea at 10 o'clock and then you'd break for lunch and then there's a cup of tea at 3 o'clock and then you go home at 5, you know. <laughs> so, But meanwhile, I've got my own phone so I can, I can sort of finish it file and file that away light a cigarette pick up the phone and go hey agent have you got any gigs for us you know (laughs) yeah so the pink finks were still going a couple of guys had left because they wanted to go to uni and stuff so but we morphed we got other people and we slowly morphed into this uh, uh, other band which was we called the party machine and that's when i started writing songs Mm-hmm. So we would write songs. I'd write songs all the time. I'd be sitting in the office and thinking of things, I'd write, scribbling down things on a pad. And, you know, then I'd go home and I'd pick up a guitar and I'd try to play it, think of these things I'd thought of while I'm sitting in the work doing tenders for the government, you know. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, and then we'd rehearse at the weekend and blah, 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 do a few gigs and gradually got better and better. You know, me and, me and Hannaford stuck together and we were kind yeah. of like a team. And I'd got to say... It's a miracle that we found each other because we lived in the same neighbourhood, but there was no other person like Ross Hannaford, and I dare say like myself as well. Yeah. And we really kind of had the same kind of rhythmic sense, you know. We kind of would sit around grooving together and listening to John Lee Hooker records and stuff and going, wow, that's great, and yeah. doing our own kind of version of that, and we kind of grew up together like that. So. You know, as time went by and, and uh, the songs that we were writing got better and better and we we made one single you know, with that band, but we cut a whole lot of demos as well. So I've still got those lying around, you know, and uh, some ended up doing a couple of those songs later with other people. But and that's, that's, that's kind of that's where it really kind of came together. Yeah, I went overseas for about a year uh, uh, and when I got back, I looked everybody up and that's sort of how... It, and I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do and reconnected with Ross Hannaford and, and then we found Gary and Wayne and and that's how uh, Daddy yeah. Cool eventually came together, you know, and and um, was an amazing little band, you know, that um, 
Gary and Wayne had been playing together for ages. They were like a really well-tempered rhythm section and Ross mm-hmm. Hannaford and I had our thing. And when you put them both together and everyone could sing, yep, uh, it was something really special, you know. So that's all that kind of um, apprenticeship that we yeah. did paid off eventually. And I was about, I think, 23 when Daddy Cool kind of hit, Yeah. Know? and we went and started making records. Oh, the start of an incredible career. That, what yeah, do you that do was, in your downtime, Ross? What do you do? Well, not much. I'm pretty boring, you know. Like, I, I leave it up to my wife to find us things to do. <laughs> you know, she's my social... Do you do anything around the house? Oh, yeah, I do stuff so, around the well, house. What do you yeah. do? Oh, you know, I, I like clean floors and garden. And, do you fix you know, anything? You, you I can a, fix stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm pretty fairly, fairly practical. You oh, know. that's good. That's good. Yeah, so yeah. you've got your own little tool kit? I do have tools, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I've got a, a leaf sucker. Sucker blower, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, various other things, you know, an electric screwdriver thing and, yep. you know, junk like that. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. So now that you're like everybody else that I know, we're all getting on a bit, we're all getting yeah. older. So how do you spend your time most of the time now if, if you're not working? You know, it's, how do you see the next 20 years uh, well, 20 years is a long time, man, when you're at my age, you know, that's sort of, uh, I'm going to be 75 in November. Yep. But with uh, the, 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 the modern medicine is, but, is yeah, absolutely I mean, miraculous. Exactly. I mean, I've got, I've had a hip replacement about six, seven years ago. Oh, yeah. And that really saved me, you know, yep. like I was starting to, I couldn't move around the stage. It was horrible. Uh-huh. Uh, but fine, got that done and it was, a, it's miraculous what you can have done, you know. Yeah. Uh, I've also got permanent lens implants in my eyes which is a I don't have to wear glasses anymore oh right it's incredible yeah yeah like like they're multifocal and everything did you have eye cataract problems I didn't have cataracts I just had uh, eyesight was going down you know Uh what they call macular oh macular degeneration yes you know so I could everything was getting blurry I just had to wear glasses pretty much all the time to read Uh or to drive or anything you know Uh, but then a doctor friend of mine said oh you know I know this you know, eye specialist, and you can get. I sort of knew you could get the lenses things in, but the new generation of them are just uh, amazing. So, both my my wife Tonya and I got them done, and we're both going, "Wow!" You know, you don't have to wear glasses, <laughs> and they you know, they're not they're not um, just for everyone who's listening. They're not um, like things you got to take out every night. No, they're there all the time. They're under under your. Yep. You know, in, they're implanted and you can rub your eyes and go to the shower and everything. But right. they're, they're just there and they last, I don't know, you get, go in for a test every now and again and and make sure they're okay. You know? well, there's nothing worse than contact lenses. I mean, you have no, to I learn, learn how to poke yourself in the eye. It. No, yeah. I couldn't do it no. either. I, I gave that away. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that's all that kind of stuff is like really helpful, you know, is yep. being able to maintain your, your lifestyle. Yep. Uh, and I keep fit. You know, I go to the gym. I go to trainer. I go oh, okay. when I'm not touring around too much. I I go twice a week, and I, I'm pretty strong. You know, I can lift dead weights and mm-hmm. pump iron and all that kind of stuff. You know, fantastic. Yeah, you got to do that if you want to keep your bones strong and 
yeah. you know, muscles happening. And, and so you're well on the way to being a bionic man. Yeah, well, I've got my wife's a bit younger than me, so I've got to keep up with her. You know, she's, <laughs> she's only she's only in her fifties. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, she's unstoppable. Yeah, she's, that's a cradle snatcher in the no, old no, vernacular, no, she's, wasn't she's, it? Uh, she's, she's incredible. Tony's always on the go. You know. Oh, that's wonderful. So, so, um, so we have a good time, you know, and we do a bit of travelling, and we take. Well, now that we're out of uh, COVID restrictions again, we're going to get back into our uh, lifestyle that we we started a few years ago. Whereas her family is originally from Greece, and we we go to Greece in sort of we're going again in July and August, mm-hmm. sort of coming back late August, and we have a fantastic time over there. So. Uh, you know, we travel around. That's a kind of that's kind of the main main focus, I think, at the moment is like going interesting places and yeah. doing you know seeing the other parts of the world. Uh, now that we can get back into that, you know. well, being in the business, you would have seen enough of Australia, I'm sure. Well, yeah. The interesting thing is, like Tanya loves it because she used to go like her parents would take her off to Europe and stuff and then back to Australia. She never got to see Australia. Uh-huh. But since we got married, you know, she gets to see all these places she never saw before. So if I'm ever going somewhere new, she goes, oh, I want to come along. I've never been there, you know. So that's a that's a real great thing too. Fantastic. Yeah. Ross, thank you very much for being my guest on The Shed Wireless. It's been an absolute yeah. delight. and. Uh, Good to hear about all the things you've been through. Sounds like the shed's getting pretty crowded now. It is, it is. Thanks again, mate. Thank you. Hello, I'm Sean McAuliffe here, and you're listening to The Shed Wireless with John Paul Young. But you already know that, don't you? I mean, obviously, you've you've already got this set up on Spotify. You don't need me to tell you this. Take it away, John. There's something for you at the mid-shed. On the tools, on the Shed Wireless. Well, Mark, a bit of your background. How did you come to have a YouTube channel and a blog all about the benefits of gardening and uh, and being self-sufficient, self-sufficient me? It sounds fascinating. Yeah, John, it's really a simple story. It kind of came out of mistake like a lot of things do. Um, it was it was just about just dispersing information to initially family and friends because we'd have people come over our place and they would ask, how did you make this jam? How did you grow that pineapple? And I would go through telling a lot of the same stuff over and over to different groups of people. And Nina, my, my wife, she said to me one day, Mark, why don't you just write some of this stuff down? And even better, how about you put it on a website, and then you can just refer people to it instead of going through that same boring story, or boring, <laughs> boring for her, uh, yeah. every time. And uh, then these people can just go and reference that, and we can get on to the next subject, please. Exactly. And, uh, oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Smart, smart thinking. Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, the missus comes up with the smart ideas. Yeah. And uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So I started a website and I, I, had, I had to learn how to make a website back then because there was no real plug-and-play stuff um, back around the 2010s. And there, there might have been, but I wasn't aware of it. So I was there trying to work out how to do things and write code and everything. But that's another story. Um, I just self-taught and I put up a very basic website called it Self-Sufficient Me because it's me being self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then a few months after that, I decided to 
also join YouTube because a lot of the information that I was actually uh, finding to do things that I do was on YouTube and I thought I might as well share some of that back. And I thought be with my military background being a lot of it instructional because I was a recruit instructor and then I was an instructor with young officers on their basic course and, and I, I was a, a weapons instructor, a weapons coach, so and also a driving instructor at one stage as well um, yeah. and a testing officer. So I had all this instructional background and I thought getting into the video would be a good way to do that and demonstrate things. Mm -hmm. um, I was terrible in front of the camera initially in those days. Um, I, I, I thought I would be okay at it, but I was actually just awful at it. <laughs> and I realised that from the beginning, but I just kept practising and practising. But essentially, to answer your question, that was the two. That was the real reason why I got into it and, and started those sites. And then they just snowballed. Other people started getting on and hitting on those sites and then emailing me and asking me questions, and it just kept on going. Yeah. Well, I'm sure this is going to be of great interest to a lot of the shedders out there because uh, a lot of the sheds have a, a garden. And, yes. uh, you know, so it, what, what's... For those who don't have a garden, well, what's the what's the easiest way to get moving? You know, in, in that in that area. Well, I think John, I think this is such a smart move because a garden, particularly a food garden, but it can be anything, whatever gives you joy. It could be a flower garden as well, or an ornamental yep. garden. But I mean, a food garden is something that you're always onto, and you're always. Um, working on, and then you're you're also getting a lot back out of it and sharing it with other people, and I think that that epitomises the shed movement, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a natural thing to have your shed and also a garden, which you can also build in your shed, make out of simple materials. I've made garden beds out of the most simplest stuff: uh, old pallets, uh, scrap decking um, that we pulled up, and then. You know, you could have chucked in the tip or you could have chipped up, but instead that hardwood lasts for years and years again in the yeah. garden, um, just holding uh, a medium, whether it be potting mixes if it's small or whether it be a large rectangular garden bed and planting all sorts of veggies in it and getting that second use out of it. And so it's really, you could be make it as, as cheap and easy and productive as you want um, uh, or... You can also, there's because of this raised bed gardening movement now over this last decade, it's exploded. You've got all sorts of other options too for people that want this immediate and really good quality garden fix. They can buy plastic molded beds, uh, alu zinc beds that last for years and years, but they are more expensive options. And then you can then upgrade to all sorts of other things like trellises that are all yep. pre-made. But as far as the men's shed goes, I could just I could just sort of feel that 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 would be something that they wouldn't be much into because they would be making a lot of this themselves. Yeah. Tricky and, and cool trellises to match the veggie and you know, all these types of things they can reinvent and use with with materials that might have gone to the tip but now are repurposed. And that's a, that's something that I, I find quite exciting. Now, um, which which vegetable do you recommend you'd start with? I mean, I, I, I have my own opinion because I've uh, I've tried and failed quite a few times. 
Um, but I, I did find that zucchini was relatively easy, and it well, didn't it didn't attract too many pests. Yeah, it it, it really depends on on what you like to eat. I wouldn't yep. recommend people buy or grow, say, radishes because they're the fastest growing veggie and they're so easy to grow, but you hate radishes because, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a, a, a waste. Yeah. Um, unless you can give them away, I suppose, um, yeah. growing for someone who loves radishes. But I would start with something that you really love eating. And a lot mm. of people like a salad and salad crops, leafy crops, the particularly the loose leaf ones, not the hearting variety. Like if you're trying to grow an iceberg lettuce, mm -hmm. uh, it, if you get a bit of an off season, a little bit extra moisture than you should, you can get all sorts of rots and they're quite difficult to grow. Other times they can, you can get a bumper season and grow a really beautiful iceberg lettuce that you'd buy at Woolies. Yeah. But you will always be able to grow a loose leaf oak uh, lettuce um, or a cos even. I know that hearts right. a little bit, but they're much easier to grow than some of those really tight-hearting varieties. And how do you deal with the ongoing problem of, uh, of pests and, uh, and, and not using insecticides? Well, uh, uh, exclusion is the easiest and best. So mm -hmm. you would just pop over an insect net over them um, right. and, and, that, and make a frame, an insect net. That's if you're having trouble. Yeah, uh, a lot of the time you might not, um, especially if you say you're back onto bushland like we do, and you can harness the good bugs coming in and the good birds to pick off those pests. Right. And like I don't, I hardly ever net our garden. I do use them in certain ways. There's certain more attractive plants and fruits and veg that the birds and, and the pests get into that I might net mostly. But a lot of the time I don't bother because we've got this really good balanced society in our garden of mm. good bugs versus bad bugs and, and good animals versus bad animals that balance each other out. And we grow enough too that we can sacrifice a few plants here and there and not worry too much about a bit of damage. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you uh, like you say, you, you sacrifice some of your crop. Yeah. Um, but you, you still do okay out of it. Yeah, you will find that you might get one or two sick cabbages and they will get attacked primarily by the bad insects because insects and most animals, they tend to, it, it's nature fixing itself up. And I've always found that you'll have a, uh, a part of the garden that's not growing the best, and that's usually what gets attacked by the insects because they're there to clean up. And mm -hmm. a lot of the other good crops or part of the bed that's got the better fertiliser or better growing medium, they, they won't get touched. And I've observed this over many years, and uh, I, I've also seen it with bigger animals. They will tend to, like a crow, will tend to not destroy your whole crop of corn. They'll come back at day after day and, and pick off one corn that they've that they've got stuck into. Of course, if you have this flock of crows and and that, well, I would net the whole the whole crop and stop it from happening. You know, right. in the tracks before you got nothing. But often I will see a crow just come and peck on one. You leave that one corn there, leave it half opened, and they'll come and they'll finish it off. By then, you're harvesting the rest of your crop and leaving that one as the sacrificial lamb. All right. So, in what area are you in, Mark? Oh, I'm in Belmere, uh, near Caboolture, 
Uh, oh, okay. About 45 kilometres north of Brizzy. Uh, which which uh, particular veggies would you recommend to kick off with? Well, I, I do like the salad crops because they're easy right. to grow and you can pick and they come again. They keep growing and you keep having salad, you know, for months on end. Then, sure. But then I also do like some of those more substantial crops that you can make things out of potatoes for example and corn mm-hmm. you can you can store corn you can freeze corn you can dry corn and you can make corn meal out of it and corn flour there's a lot of things you can do with it if you've got a bulk crop potatoes store particularly well so do so do sweet potatoes and both of them grow quite well just about everywhere at the right time mm-hmm. and um, I also think tomatoes because tomatoes, whether you like them fresh like I do on a slice of bread or you love tomato sauce, can be used to make either of those things, condiments or fresh or in stews or whatever. And we tend to use tomatoes a whole lot. So if you can just grow a few of those things, I think, you know, or maybe even cabbage on top of it because that's Mm -hmm. also something that it grows quite big and fast and, and it's easy to store, it's easy to freeze and it's easy to ferment to make, say, sauerkraut out of. So those are some of the big ones that I'd like to grow. So you'd be better off uh, covering the cabbage, wouldn't you? Because, I mean, the, the, the old cabbage moth doesn't take long to show up. Well, I've covered mine not because of cabbage moth but because uh, I've had some of the birds come in and, and start pecking the heads as they're getting ready to harvest. Uh-huh. Um, so I just loosely threw over a bit of insect mesh while we're just harvesting them. But I, I harvested about four cabbages that were half-pecked um, yesterday, and I've chopped them up. I just chopped out the pecked bit and yeah. then had plenty left over. I chopped it all up, put it into bags in the crisper, um, and we're just using handfuls of that now to make coleslaw or cabbage with bacon and you know all sorts of, con- all sorts of side dishes for our meals over this next week. Fantastic. Have you, are you growing any bush tucker? Well, bush tucker, like um, herbs and spices, well, yeah. Davidson plum. So, yeah, uh-huh. I know what you're talking about. Look, Australian native limes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we do. I love those, um, those types of bush tucker crops uh, because they're natural to our environment. And, mm. you know, even the macadamia, you know. Yes. The, and they grow fast and easy. They do tend to have their own native pests too, so you've got to watch that. Um, but well, I, know the, I know the bush rats love them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But nothing will touch a Davidson plum okay. because they're just so sour. But right. <laughs> if you make them into a jam or a condiment or a sauce, um, yeah, add a bit of sugar, uh, they, they're, really, <laughs> they're really beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful! That's wonderful. I, I've actually, I, I was just, uh, I was talking to Mark before we started, and uh, I've been uh, way out uh, in the the northwest of New South Wales, and uh, and I actually brought a, a bit of bush tucker back with me. I um, uh, a bush spinach. Bush spinach. Yes, and I'm pleased to pleased to say that I put it in the ground yesterday, and it still looks alive today. <laughs> wow, I haven't I haven't heard of bush spinach. Well, I hadn't either. It's a it's a it's a tough looking plant, and it's got little tiny little yellow flowers on it, and, uh, and I grabbed a couple of leaves and uh, had a munch on them, 
yesterday just before we left yeah. out there at Gaduga and, and it tasted okay, you know. So um, the nice. lady that introduced me to it, uh, she showed me where it was and uh, we pulled a couple of hunks out and so now it's in the backyard and I'm hoping for the best. I'm going to have to look that up. Well, uh, Mark, it's been an absolute joy, and and this is uh, you, I think you've inspired me because I've I've had a few a few goes at uh, doing the veggie garden, and uh, normally something gets in the way, and you forget about it for a while, and uh, and it goes back yeah. to goes back to nature too too quickly. So, um, but now that um, spring is on its way. Uh, I think you've uh, you've definitely inspired me, and I'll I'll get back out there and um, and have another crack at it this year. No worries, John. You'll find that the the more successes you have, and they will come, the more you want to build this backyard veggie empire. I, I guarantee you, and the, the more joy you'll get out of it. So keep at it. Good on you. Thanks very much, Thanks, Mark Tom. Valencia. There, thank you. See ya. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. Right, here we go. We're going to go back to Williston in South Australia, uh, a little town up near Gawler, northeast of Adelaide. And uh, I'm going to be talking to Dave Clark. And Dave's there waiting for me right now. Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm good, thanks, John. And yourself? Yeah, fine. Thank you. Uh, we've spoken before, of course, about the um, uh, Where There's a Will project. That's correct. Yeah, terrific. But we thought we'd uh, have a dig around the, the Williston Shed. Uh, it's, it sounds like a great story. Um, what was your background before you got involved in the shed, Dave? Uh, originally, um, I finished work early due to ill health, and then I started to go in into the shed to do my volunteer work for Newstart. And mm-hmm. loved it so much. As soon as I retired, I couldn't wait to actually get there as a, a retired member instead of um, the government paying me to be there. <laughs> <laughs> the shed's got a pretty long history. Was it 2007? That's correct, yes. Yeah, um, we celebrated our 10th birthday in uh, 2017, and that went over really well. Fantastic. So uh, how many members have you, do you have in there, Dave? We've just clocked 100 members. That's fantastic. I was reading that on, on any given day, you you know, you, you, you're well supported, uh, over 40, 40 people. That's right. And um, we've got between the wood workshop, uh, the metal workshop, gardening, and we also have a recliners club as well. A recliners club. Yeah, that's the guys who either can't do any work or don't want to do any work. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And another interesting thing that I was reading about, that uh, you have a try before you buy membership. We certainly do. <laughs> um, what we like to do is um, we, we do invite them to walk around with us. We have a set uh, procedure, mm-hmm. a set procedure to walk them around and introduce them to the people. Um, but we do ask them to come along for a couple of visits uh, just to make sure that they are happy with what they want to come to and then uh, they pay their membership fee from there. I suppose your success rate would be pretty high, wouldn't it? It's very high, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was reading uh, that uh, you've got lots of activities there, pool, darts, yes. table tennis. Yes. And, uh, and, and cooking. Oh, cooking's an old one. Uh, th- that member left the shed a while ago, um, but we do have um, 
uh, a monthly sausage sizzle where we get a couple of the lads that join us. And I, I haven't told you yet either. Our oldest member's 91 and our youngest member's only 16. Oh, now that is wonderful. That is yeah. wonderful. So, uh, And it's the younger ones that cook the barbecues for us. <laughs> so the uh, the mentoring is uh, alive and well at the Williston Shed. Very much so, yes. But I was going to say, how, how many members do you have that are on the, the younger side of things? Um, we have uh, three members uh, because we have to give them one-on-one attention. Mm-hmm. So we have one on a Monday, one on a Wednesday, and one on a Friday. What's What are the most popular activities around there in that shed? Probably 60 to 70% of the work done is woodworking. Yep. And the rest probably in the metal workshop. And we've got one or two that do the gardening. I got excited when I saw the cooking thing. I, I thought, oh, maybe you're in there experimenting with new dishes and things, but is a sausage sizzle about, about as far as it goes? I <laughs> know uh, we, we do have some creative people there. Um, oh, good. One of the members actually bought some uh, peanut satay sauce along once, and everybody liked it so much he has to do it for every sausage sizzle now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, uh, you know, Adelaide is, uh, well, South Australia is famous for its, uh, got lovely seafood. Do, do you ever get some of that up there? We do, actually. We um, we have one of our members that knows somebody who uh, he actually goes out prawning all the time. And we get ah. prawns for about half the price that you can buy them for in the shops. Oh, that's so marvellous. Really so, well, yeah. So where's the local prawning area for, for you guys? It'd be a fair way away. Tell the honest truth, I don't know, John. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's in the sea somewhere. <laughs> it's in the sea. Yeah. Now, a lot of our sheds um, do a bit of fundraising. Uh, do you guys do some fundraising there? We do. Um, most of the things that we make get sold quite readily. Um, anything that doesn't sell, after going to four or five markets, we ask the guys just to hold back on making any more of those and we try making some new stuff that, um, and see if that will sell well. You guys are famous for the uh, Where There's a Will project. Yes, that's right. So how's that going? That's going really well. Um, I don't know whether you're aware of the fact that there's uh, some ironic ties between Ange Clark, who has um, started this bat in uh, for Will. Uh, my name's David Clark, obviously, but we're not related. Uh, her son is William, but he's always called Willow. And we are Willow's Man Shed, so there's some connection there. And that's why they chose our shed to launch the challenge for Batting for Will. Oh, okay. So is is Will a, a local or is he from a, another area? He's from Robertson in New South Wales. Now, do you see that? Yeah, somewhere in my brain I was getting a bit confused. That's right, yeah, the, the Robertson Men's Shed. Uh, support it, yes. Yeah, they support him. So, so uh, both of your sheds doing the same kind of thing? Very much, yeah. Are you the only two that are doing that? Oh, no, no. The challenge has gone out to all sheds around Australia and quite a few have taken this challenge up. Um, What it is, it's getting the uh, cricket bat ready for an exhibition uh, early next year and we're hoping it's going to be at Government House in Canberra. Yes, because uh, our Governor-General has one of the, the bats, doesn't he? That's correct, yes. And uh, what was it? Refresh my memory. Was it a, a, a ship? Oh no! It was a was it a train? I think there was a train on top of the bat. Ah, okay. yeah. Okay. So the main amount of different things that are coming in, yeah. um, Aboriginal dot painting, 
uh, mm -hmm. wood carving directly on the bat. Um, and one of our lads that's in our um, program, he's really, really good at art. Mm -hmm. And he did a, a fantastic picture of a WG Grace, one of the early cricket players. Yes. And above that was the Phoenix. And we had written on that, um, Rising from the Ashes. Oh, he's, yeah, he spent a long time doing that and he did a beautiful job of it too. Oh, it sounds like, a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful project. Uh, who, whose idea was it to, to start this off? Ange Clark uh, from Robertson, which is Will's mum. Right. So, but how did how did the the germ of the idea come about? Do you know? Was it? Uh, well, it went through um, AMSA, um, and then they started spreading it around to all the other sheds. Yeah. Um, and now it's actually getting to the stage where it's starting to lift off the ground quite well, mm -hmm. and quite a few sheds are jumping on board to support this charity. Right. So, whose idea was it to uh, focus on cricket bats? Uh, Will is mad crazy on cricket. Uh huh. Um, there's actually a couple of videos online to have a look at and you can see he loves his great game of cricket mm -hmm. and at the end of each uh, game, the, even the visiting club, um, they let Will bowl the last over. Right. Uh, he just absolutely loves cricket and one day they said uh, clean a cricket bat down and they gave it to a local artist to uh, put some work on and since then they've auctioned off, I'm not sure how many bats, quite a few, and this is where all the men's sheds around Australia have been invited to join in and make this charity work. Right. Is, is Will capable of doing his own bat art? I'm not sure, to tell you the truth. I, when I was talking to Mum, she mentioned mostly um, that when he cleans the bats down, he does send them out to get them done. But I imagine he's had a go at putting some artwork on. I'm sure he has, and I'm sure that would be of great interest to people as well because it, it, it says here he's worked with over 750 artists. That's uh, right. <laughs> refurbished and exhibited 800 cricket bats and sold almost 700 pieces of art on the cricket bats. Yeah. Have you got how much some of those cricket bats are going for? No, I haven't. Let me know. Um, some of them have been two and $3,000. Wow. And maybe even more. Oh, that's fantastic. That so really it's, it's fantastic. a good support for this charity. And uh, also the Williston Shed is, um, you know, when I was reading about it, it, it really is a wonderful example of uh, men's sheds and the community getting together. It is, John, yeah. We love to support the community. Um, in actual fact, we get to the stage where uh, we have to spread ourselves pretty thin to help support as many of the community organisations as possible. And the community are helping the shed as well. Uh, Very much. Uh, through grants and things. That's right. We get a tremendous amount of support from the uh, Gawler Council, um, Rotary of Gawler, and they've given us an incredible amount of support. And even our local funeral director, he's jumped on board and did a charity dinner for us one uh, year, and we got nearly $10,000 from that. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, I tell you what, David. It's, it really sounds like the Williston Shed has uh, has got it all together. It really does. It sounds like you're you know you're a, you're a great organisation. Like I said, you're uh, you're doing it with the community, and the community's uh, feeding back into into the Williston Shed. And of course, where there's a will, is is a wonderful wonderful uh, charity that that uh, that's been organised. And uh, I thank you very much for being our shedder in the spotlight this uh, this time around, Dave. No worries, Janet. It was a pleasure.
Good on you. Thanks very much. Dave Clark there from the Williston Shed. We acknowledge the Ghana people, the traditional custodians of the land on which the members of the Willows Men's Shed meet, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Got a question? Ask the doc, Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. Well, hi everybody. Stuart Torrance here from the Australian Men's Shed Association. I'm here for Ask the Doc on the Shed Wireless. We're here to talk about a very special subject today. We've been promoting Batting for Will program in sheds, putting together cricket bats with an artistic flair that can be displayed and auctioned to support and help the Batting for Will organisation. So today I thought it would be very pertinent that we talk to Dr. Darren Hadley, Associate Professor, Principal Research Fellow uh, of the School of Psychology and Public Health at La Trobe University, Melbourne. Because looking at his repertoire, he's done a lot in regards to the autism space. So I thought it would be interesting just to find out a little bit more about autism and how may uh, Sheds actually link in here. Good morning, Darren. How are you going? Yes, thank you very much for the uh, very generous introduction, uh, Stuart. Very happy to be here this morning. Fantastic. Darren, you're the Deputy Editor of Autism in Adulthood, Research Director for Health and Wellbeing at the Olga Tenson Autism Research Centre. You've participated in a suicide response project to name numerous publications and books that you've contributed to over the years. I think you're the go-to person here for the autism space for us. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Stuart. Um, we have a really wonderful team here at the uh, Olga Tennyson Autism Research Centre, uh, which is uh, based within the School of Psychology, Public Health at La Trobe University, as you uh, said. And I, I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by you know, a wonderful team of dedicated researchers uh, and people who are very passionate um, about the topic and uh, de- developing ways that we can sort of translate our our research and our academic work um, across to uh, support um, and have better outcomes for autistic people, um, uh, you know, from uh, uh, birth really right through to old age. Okay. So let's get into this topic. Darren, in that regard, there's a... A word that's often bandied around, and I, I think I, I, what I'd like to do is ask for your, uh, I suppose, input about what it actually means. What is on the spectrum? We hear it all the time. What does it mean? Yes, that's a, it's a very good question, and um, there's, there's a, a lot of differing opinions, I guess, in terms of the, the types of terms and the language that we use um, mm. with regard to, to autism. And um, it's really something that's in constant change at the moment, particularly as autistic people themselves. And I'm tending to use the, um, uh, what we say is identity first language here because that's the the preference of uh, many autistic people, but uh, Mm -hmm. it's also not the preference of everyone. Um, So... um, uh, we, uh, we need to acknowledge that. And on the spectrum, it's really a term introduced uh, many years ago to um, 
sort of capture the differences between um, autistic people. So um, what that means is that um, there was a, a bit of a saying which uh, said if you meet one autistic person, you've met um, or one, one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's what it's really trying to capture there so that, you know, it's this idea that the spectrum is very broad and um, you may have uh, people on that spectrum who have um, higher support needs uh, than others um, and you also have people who are, you know, have PhDs who are, um, you know, working at, uh, you know, various uh, levels but, um, you know, also may have... Uh, specific uh, support needs around their autism um, as well, but, but very different uh, to someone else. So I think that's that's kind of the idea uh, uh, that we're talking with there. No, 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 that's a, that, that's a good level from where we're at. But in, in, in looking at that, so what you're saying is, uh, and I, I was sort of taken aback when you said people with PhDs are on the spectrum, uh, and it, I recalled a, a lady that uh, I saw on Landline that actually had a way with cattle uh, and livestock. Uh, and she was amazing about how she designed different, uh, I, I suppose, structures to allow cattle and sheep and things to flow through. She, she almost thought like the animal. Uh, and people were flooding to her, and she—I she, I remember she did read a, uh, write a, an academic paper, which I found was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you're talking about Temple Grandin there, and I, I'm just looking up at my bookcase. I've got—I've um, uh, got a, her book here, and um, you, you know, she's a fascinating person. To uh, there's been some, you know, movies, books written, uh, etc., about the life of Temple Grandin. Um, and uh, she faced a lot of uh, challenges as a as a child, and particularly because um, where she grew up, but not a lot of people knew about autism, and uh, mm -hmm. particularly at the time as well. And fortunately, she had a very um, a strong mother who really um, supported her. And um, you know, she's a world uh, one of probably the expert in the space that she works in um, in the world. Uh, flies all over the well to to advise on that topic so yes yeah, certainly and, and to answer your specific question i um i, I you know, probably couldn't comment on that at all Stuart. we <laughs> would go back to um you know if people uh do uh, sort of resonate um mm -hmm. with, uh, stories of other people who maybe do have a diagnosis then uh you know we'd certainly encourage uh, them to go and uh, chat to a, a specialist or a psychologist or someone um, who does work in that, uh, uh, yeah. in that space um, uh, about about their concerns. But you know, really, the, the there's a theory that says we all uh, autistic traits uh, exist within uh, the entire population. Um, mm -hmm. To different degrees. So, if we think of sort of a, uh, you know, a, a continuous line, but but for someone to have a diagnosis of autism, then they would be at the upper end um, of those traits. So, um, to the degree where maybe that those auti autistic traits maybe um, making life a little more challenging for them, or potentially that they uh, needed some supports in that. 
um, and that area, whereas mm -hmm. someone who sort of fell below the diagnostic criteria um, m might not experience that as a challenge uh, uh, mm -hmm. in their life. So, you know, an example might be an interest in uh, something specific. Uh, it might be trains, you know, for for example. Um, now, there's certainly a lot of people who have a, a an interest in trains or historical interests who, who aren't autistic. Um, mm -hmm. At the same uh, side of that, there might be autistic people who have a very intense interest in uh, trains as well. It doesn't mean that it's a, a trait. You no, know, yeah. yeah. something that's atypical to the general population. It might just be the degree uh, of interest. So um, an autistic person might find it difficult to talk about something other than trains in a social situation. Um, so, so Darren, can I just clarify there? Would would you say sort of a savant type mentality to a particular subject or uh, ability? It, it certainly can be a, a very high knowledge uh, mm. in, in that area, and you know, we are, it's quite funny in academia where I mean that's sort of what our job is is to mm. have you know a very developed um, knowledge in a very small and specific area. Um, so hence, uh, we talked about you know, autistic people having, um, often having PhDs. It can be a real strength um, in the academic setting to have, um, you know, a very uh, restricted, we call uh, maybe restricted interest or specific interest in a topic where mm -hmm. you really want to know everything about that topic. So in in that regard, what we've been talking about, it's not a disease. Uh, it's not something you can catch. It, it is the way we or those people are or anybody that's on the on this called so-called spectrum. It's how they are, not something that they've they've caused or or has been caused by an accident or something like that. Yeah, uh, is that be right. Yes, uh, it's very correct, sure. And um, so it's it's not something we acquire. It's 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 not a disease. It's uh, something that um, people we will be born with through the mm -hmm. uh, the genetic um, makeup and you know we often find when we uh, a child is maybe diagnosed um, uh, with autism or is autistic when they sort of look back through their family they can see some of those traits in other uh, family members um, we we're sort of shifting away from uh, what we call the uh, medical model where uh, mm -hmm. autism was uh, considered within the medical model and sort of looking at uh, more from a, a, a different perspective where we're under, understanding autism with, within the context of the environment um, that people are in. So rather than there being something, uh, you know, in quotation marks, uh, wrong with the person, it's really mm -hmm. the fit to the environment. If the, if the environment isn't a great uh fit for them or isn't supportive of them, then it makes it very hard. And we, we've done a lot of work in the uh, in the employment space and um, many autistic people can do very well in employment uh, and, and with their jobs, they're keen to work. But if the environment isn't supportive of them, uh, mm. it may be very difficult for them to yeah, either get the job in the first place or to uh, sustain that employment. And yeah. it's got nothing to do 
with their ability to do the work. It may be um, the noise in the environment, the lights, it may be um, difficulties with social relationships with other people. So a little bit of knowledge about autism in that environment, um, maybe some minor changes um, to the lights or to uh, having a, a quiet environment may be helpful to support that person uh, to enable them to do the job that they're able to do. But in, in, in regards to the overall, um, I think what they really need is understanding, um, compassion uh, and acceptance. Um, and I, I think that's the uh, the go-to at this present point in time. We're all learning to learn and uh, and uh, support and encourage one another in uh, whatever realm we, we find ourselves. I've uh, been thinking about this. There's been a huge focus on younger autism, children on the autism spectrum, uh, the services that they can have through NDIS. And older people seem to be off the radar, uh, if I could put it that way. Um, now, I've, I've seen the program Employable Me, where a lot of people on the autism spectrum uh, uh, have gone through this employment process uh, and they're receiving supports and so on. But on the whole, you don't actually hear a lot about older people with autism. Do they pass away early? Do they, you know, or do they just fall off the radar? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Stuart, and particularly coming from a research and clinical um, perspective, the focus for many, many years was on uh, was on children, and autism was really seen as a, a childhood, a condition of childhood, um, and uh, people fail seem to fail to realise that those children actually grew, grew up and grew into adults, and um, I, I think there has been a uh, a shift to focusing on autism in that, or to, uh, you know, look, the bulk of it is still around childhood uh, resources, uh, research, uh, supports, etc. cetera. Uh, but there has been um, a burgeoning sort of research and interest in autism in adults, uh, mm-hmm. which is good. However, at the upper end of the, the I guess we call it the age spectrum in um, older adults, Um, there's still a real dearth of research, of knowledge of what does autism look like for people who are retired, who are not in the workforce, Um, Mm. what happens to autistic people who have maybe received support from their parents for most of their life and then parents get to an age where they're no longer able to support um, their, their adult child with autism or they pass away themselves. Um, and that's something that's a, a real area of concern to parents um, as they enter their, uh, uh, into old age is what's going to happen to my child who I've been mm-hmm. supporting. So it's a, it's a really stressful period uh, for parents. And to be honest, it's not something we know uh, a lot about. Our research here is focused on um, uh, the employment, uh, space for adults, the mental health space, um, but I really think we need to shift ourselves and uh, really look at autism in uh, in older age as well. Hmm. Mm. Uh, reading up on some of your research papers, I see you have a very um, keen and uh, directed, uh, I suppose, research focus on, on suicide within the autism network and, and how high suicide is and I suppose that has a lot to do with how we as a community interact uh, uh, and are open and welcoming to them. Have you any um, sort of 
suggestions about how we as a, a men's shed community, I'm sure in most sheds there'll be somebody uh, on the autism spectrum and, you know, we'll all be sitting around morning tea listening to this and looking around the room and going, oh, yeah, Billy there or Tom there or, yeah, that they're special. <laughs> and, and they've been welcomed and they've been the, the shed has been open to receiving them. But is there any more that we can do? Look, I, to, to be honest, Joe, I, th I think sheds are a great fit uh, for this community. Um, one of the biggest risk uh, factors that we see for uh, mental health distress, um, suicide risk as well, is social mm -hmm. isolation. Um, and, and with the research that we've done without specifically focusing on um, the older uh, autistic community, um, is the social isolation, the lack of support um, that many older autistic uh, people, uh, men and women, uh, uh, have and, and, and face, um, but, but particularly men who... Um, a lot of autistic women have, you know, probably better, uh, possibly better social skills than autistic males which may lead to uh, or precipitate some of this uh, social isolation. So I think, you know, that's one of the underlying factors of, um, of the sheds is, is to reduce that uh, social isolation that many of us face uh, the older we get. Um, and that's certainly the, the factor with um, uh, autistic men within our, uh, within our community. I think there's great uh, opportunity here to... Um, to be part of the solution um, and, and uh, you know, change that, uh, that outlook for um, older autistic men in the community. As we've said before, being open, welcoming um, and just accepting uh, of what's there. Obviously, those that need carers uh, should be asked to bring their carers. Um, those that uh, can function quite well on their own, we just need to be open and accepting. Darren, thank you very much for this uh, little chat uh, about autism. I think it's uh, increased our knowledge of what it is, but I think there's more reading and research to be done from a shed perspective. Uh, I think we might need to look into something that uh, would support sheds uh, with their knowledge about uh, autism, and we'll look into that. But in the meantime, we'd just like to encourage all sheds across Australia to get on board with the Batting for Will project and uh, increase your knowledge and your acceptance of this wonderful community that can teach us so much. When we're focused on other things, they're focused possibly very intently on a particular area of life that might just uh, be interesting to us if we actually open up and listen to these people. We thank everyone for um, tuning in to Ask the Doc segment today, and uh, we wish you all best. We'll talk to you next. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on the Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. Ask the Doc is brought to you by Australia's Men's Shed Association partner, CRC Industries Australia. Just like their products, CRC supports the high standards of maintenance and repair of your biggest mechanical asset, your body and mind. Nailed it!
Nailed it. Nailed it. Nailed it with Rick Woodchip. G'day, Shadows. Rick Woodchip here. How are you all going today? I've just been up in my shed doing a bit of organising. I try and keep it relatively tidy, but there's a certain amount of messy progression that seems to take place, and I've got to reorganise things every now and again. I sure do have some gear up there. I don't know if I'll ever get around to using the majority of it, and especially me tools. There's some bloody good stuff that I've accumulated over the years, and it's still in pretty good nick too. I probably need to ask the missus what she intends on doing with it all once I kick the bucket. Same with a lot of me stuff, I guess. You see, when I go, I want me missus to open up me shed and give me tools away to someone who can really use them and put them to good use. You know, I looked after them the best I could, and it's no use letting them go to waste when they can still be pretty useful to someone. You hear what I'm saying, Shedders? I mean, if Gary the young chippy down the road's minor saw's busted and he's stuffed without one, why not let him use mine? It's still in good use. It's still good to go. Good enough to get him out of trouble, that's for sure. It's the same with our spare parts. You know, like organ donation. Yeah, I've registered. Why wouldn't I? When I go, if my ticket can still hold a beat and it's still good enough to keep someone else chugging along for a bit, then go for your life. I mean, I might not win you the city to surf, but it'll get you around the block a few times. It just makes sense, though. I reckon it's a tragedy that some poor bug has to die just because he can't get a new airbag, or some poor soul has to spend his life in and out of hospital because his kidney packs it in, and they reckon there's hundreds of people on the waiting list, and there's some that just miss out completely. Bugger that. I tell you what, it'd break my heart if it was someone I knew that just didn't get another go just because I never got around to giving me permission to use me parts. And crikey. There's just about nothing that goes to waste nowadays. They even use your eyeballs. Yeah, it can sound pretty gruesome, but it's one of them conversations you just got to have. And as I've told the missus many times before, <laughs> I'm just the gift that keeps on giving, even when I cark it. It's a pity that not every part of the anatomy is transferable, you know what I mean? <laughs> not sure if they can utilise my brain as yet either. Might have to just donate that one to science. Even though I've tried to impart my formidable knowledge upon me in a circle, there's still an abundance of information up there that is sure to be of use well into the future. But seriously, they say there ain't no greater gift than the gift of life. And if someone can make use of me bits, then that'd suit me just fine. In fact, it'd be good to know there's still a part of me contributing to the universe, even after I'm gone. So anyway, Shedders, each to their own. But for me, it's a no-brainer. And it ain't hard to do. Just give them a call or ring your doc. And for goodness sake, don't forget to tell your missus and the kids too. Or they might just have other plans for your stuff. Have a heart and share your spare parts. Okay, Shedders, I better go lock up the shed. Or my gear will be going nowhere but the chain gang charity. Okay, fellas, catch you next time. See you, fellas. After chatting with Mark Valencia, it really did inspire me and uh, I've just been out and had another look at my veggie garden and it's coming along quite well. The only problem now is it might rain just a little bit too much. So if you've got a patch at home or at the shed, I'd love to see it. Drop me an email to theshedwireless at menshed.net. You'll find heaps of ideas and inspiration on Mark's blog, Self Sufficient Me. He's on YouTube and his website is www.selfsufficientme.com. 
And remember, share your favourite podcast with your shedding mates. Give them a hand to subscribe if you can or send them to www.menshed.org forward slash the shed wireless. Until next time, folks, for the love of shedding. Welcome one and all Share the skills you know